Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before, in school, at work, or on a team. Your first coaches were your mom and dad who taught you how to communicate, tie your shoes, or play a simple game of catch. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoy my show, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. They don't pay you unless you're one of the four people on CNN or Fox. What actually pays you is skills. So every business needs to know where their money is. That's basically what accounting is. And every business wants to know how to get more money. Welcome back to the Coaching Call Podcast. My guest today is Joe Rocky Jr. Joe created a successful real estate career beginning in the immediate aftermath of the recession of 2009. Join us as we discuss the many facets of business and real estate. Good morning. Good morning, Joe. Thank you so much for joining me on Coaching Call. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's going to be fun, man. I, I, yes, indeed. I, real estate, religion, podcasting. What do mm-hmm. you say, right? Just yeah, it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so be, before we get into that, because you, you are doing a lot of different things. So you're not just a, a uh, one-trick pony. You are a true mm-hmm. entrepreneur. You're doing a lot of different things. You even have a new podcast coming out next Thursday. So we'll talk about mm-hmm. that as well. But I, I want to know more about you growing up, who influenced you, what moment in time did you go, hmm, this is the direction I want to go in. So let, let's get into that. Sure. So um, so I, I guess to tell the story correctly, I got to influence what one of my biases are before we begin because sure, uh, it'll highlight it. I personally believe that the educational system in America is the design to crush entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Uh, it's designed to feed you a box you. Yeah. that not, keeps you from being an entrepreneur. And I distinctly remember, this was in second grade, that there was a kid in our class and I just remember the way that his teeth were, that the parts that were exposed to the sunlight were always brighter than the not. And it probably happened like all kinds of kids. But lo and behold, about three years later, UV teeth whitening became invented. At that essential moment where I knew not only was my idea right, and everyone told me that I was wrong and I was dumb for having it, I essentially realized between second and fourth grade that listening to everyone's opinion is a bad idea, even if they're older than and for a kid to learn that kind of really set up the mentality of the direction that I ultimately would go. Mm. I love creating things and seeing if they'd work. Um, when I, my first real jobs through all throughout college were essentially in sales. So mm. my whole life was learning how to get sales. And then my two degrees in college are accounting and financing. And the reason for that was because I knew these theories that tell everyone they're wrong, or at least only make you right, depending on how you want to look at it, 
they don't pay you unless you're one of the four people on CNN or Fox. What actually pays you is skills. So every business needs to know where their money is. That's basically what accounting is. And every business wants to know how to get more money. Well, that's what financing is. But the real way to do it and the hardest way to do it is sales. And that's an incredibly important skill set, one that the vast majority of this country has no idea how to do. And right there with management-coaching, I think are the most two important things that drive this economy is our individual abilities to sell and to manage our people. So that's in a long story short. That, that's why I wanted to be a part of this. I, I, I love what you're doing here. And um, so, so, so to get, how did I get from here to there? I basically listened to what I knew successful people were paying. And I started judging people very early on in life to see if they were going to be successful or not. And the vast majority of, of people I saw teaching me or trying to teach me, um, I realized weren't exactly the method that I wanted to go down. Like they were doing something wrong. And yeah, you become judgmental. And in some ways, society says you shouldn't judge people. But being a landlord, um, especially as a landlord, as a manager as well, judging people is an incredibly important skill. You need to learn how to do it. And just because you tell people they're bad at life does not mean it's not something that's good. Just because they don't like it doesn't mean you're bad. So that's the quick hitter on on why I think judgment's important and a little bit of how it guided uh, guided the process to get here. Nice, nice. You know, one of the things that that you talked about is how salesmanship is so critical. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're all salesmen at the age of what three, five, seven until it gets beat out of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do we do? Hey, mom, I want ice cream. Nope, can't have any. I want ice cream. I want ice cream. I want ice cream. I want ice cream. And then they go, no, she finally gets enough. And she goes, go ask your dad. So you go ask the dad. And he's like, go ask mom. I already asked her. She said, yes. So it's <laughs> almost like the kids, the kids know how to manipulate. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is they get put down, put down, put down. And then when it comes to the real world, what do they do? They climb up. They don't know what to do. They forget to ask over and over again for the sale because They'll go and present everything. And sometimes you'll see salespeople leave without asking for the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Do you want this product? Do you want to buy? Right. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that, you know, you said as a landlord, you have to be judgmental because mm -hmm. you have to judge the person coming into your home, whether you live in it or you're renting it or you have several units because those people, the way they behave is going to impact your finances right mm -hmm. if they come in if they trash the place you're in you're in a hole right the yeah, absolutely yeah. in, i had a friend of mine and a quick story i had a friend of mine super nice guy zero business sense so he bought his mom passed he took over her house he said oh i got the second floor it's a two family he goes i'll rent it out he rented it out to three guys i said well how's everything going he goes okay i said how do you know if they're keeping the place good? Oh, I, I, they're nice guys. I said, okay. So one guy gets killed in mm. an accident. So the other guys can't afford it. So they move out. Can I tell you how much money he had to spend to fix the place up? Because he never went up there. There was three windows had to be replaced because there was a, a leak in the roof. He didn't even know. And it had rot and it had all this. So he had to spend so much money just to fix it. Had he every so often said, hey, you guys, I just want to come in and just make sure everything's good. You have, is the toilet running well? Just even questions, right? As a landlord, obviously, you know all this stuff. But so many people 
That's the pitfalls, right, of being mm-hmm. a landlord? Well, there's a lot of pitfalls of being a landlord. Landlording is one of these things that everyone thinks they can do because <laughs> yeah. it just is like, well, I've had a landlord when I was in college or whatever, and it's not that hard. And in reality, to run it as a business is incredibly difficult. And just because you're successful in another facet of life, especially if you're a professional, we're talking lawyers, surgeons, something that people would admire to whenever he asks ask someone, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're dealing with other professionals on a regular basis. Tenants ain't that. Let's just just put it like that. And and for a lot of people, jumping that skill set from where you are professionally in life to a different stratosphere is very challenging because there's so many assumptions that most people have internally that they're going to be like me. And, And the reality is they're not. This is why Wayne Gretzky was a horrible coach. He just assumed everyone to be as good as him. Well, the reality is, They're not. And that's how most people fail from a starting point. That story you've given me of mom, grandma passed away. I got stuck with a house. That's incredibly common in my industry. And then what happens is they either partner up with a landlord who knows how they're doing it. They sell the house or they spend years of getting destroyed and just have resiliency to say, I'm going to do this because mom would have been upset if someone else owned it, which in reality is not a good way to live. Because normally your mom would have been happier if you were happy than if you held the stupid piece of property. Uh, that's a digression. That That's just something from having done this for over 11 years of being a, a real estate investor, of having known this. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've bought properties from that were so torn by the fact that their tenants destroy the house, but they feel like they're throwing their mother away by selling it. Mm. And um, that's a, a much deeper problem or, or situation that, that obviously I've gone through many times. I can't articulate that in a 30 second tidbit, but the point is, is that it is not easy being a landlord just because there's people who've done it that you don't think are the most reputable or nicest people in the world. Well, maybe they're that way because the tenants essentially require it that be. If you're running out to people who are literally only paying 2% of the rent because the government's taking care of the rest of it. To be able to manage those people effectively, you almost have to be near their level to know the tricks they're going to play in the rest of it. Because um, at the end of the day, being a Section 8 landlord, you're manipulating the government as much as they are. Right. So um, while there's certainly a lot of people that do that, it's not a part of the industry I revere or wish still existed. Um, it is part of it. Is is You need to have systems that are on your tenant's level or you become on your tenant's level. So the systems, right? And and that's that's everything, right? With business, any type of business, mm-hmm. you need systems. It, and it doesn't matter if you run a small mom and pop shop or if you run Home Depot or Lowe's or any anything like that, or even if you run a multi-family unit, right? Mm-hmm. Systems is what's going to set everything up for success, right? Without systems, aren't you like doing it over and over again and, and not being successful in that regard? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the systems are everything. The systems are why I can have so many different businesses and have them all running because all of us have different personality types. That's just the way of life. Mm. I mean, some, some psychologists say there's four, some say there's 16, some say there's more than that. Regardless is we're all a little bit different and we all like doing different things that other people with different personality types don't like doing. And what people really get themselves in trouble with is whenever you're trying to force yourself down a funnel, that's something you're not good at and don't like doing that. As I said in the beginning, I do sales. I love sales, but I love a part 
of sales, not the whole thing. Because essentially the whole sales system, you think of this as a donut place. Step one, get people coming in the door. Step two, get them to want to give you money in exchange for the donut. And step three, give a good donut. So for me, I hate the process that is getting people in the door. Uh, That's why I have partners that all that they do is fill my calendar so that I can go knock on new doors to buy new properties. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm not good at that. If I spent my entire life behind a desk, I would burn out and quit. But I know I like being walking through people's houses, talking to them and doing that process of the sale. They would hate that. So by result, connecting with the two of us makes a very good connection for how to make a good business. So as we're moving forward, what you need to know is be honest with yourself. What are you good at and what are you not good at? What do you enjoy doing and what do you not enjoy doing? Now, for some people who have been forced into certain positions, those two categories of what do I want and what am I good at are not always connected. Some of us need to get better at what we like doing because sometimes what we like doing is a figment of what we think it is instead of what it really is. So Hmm. some experience helps with that. But as we're able to build our own lives and our own businesses, those two items, what I want and what I'm good at, will eventually become the same thing. And then you need to figure out how to make systems for the stuff that is important. That's very crucial. Just stuff because you think it should be done, but it's not relevant, should not be done. And cutting out all of that fluff out of your business and life Hmm. is something that for some reason is scary to people. There's a personality type that's scared to death of that. but for most people, it's it, it's liberating because you don't realize how much it wastes your time. Um, email is a perfect example of that. Um, I get probably 200 emails across a week. Maybe six of them are relevant. So at the end of the day, uh, most people, if, if it's something I know for, I know who's going to be sending it to me. So I can kind of keep an eye when it comes across my phone. Like, oh, okay, it's not them. I can continue disregarding my, my email. Well, the other part of it is normally if something's that important, they call me anyway. And the joy of the phone is it's saved their number or it's a, you know, it's an unknown number and it's probably not relevant. So I look at, at making systems, the most important thing. And when I've talked to other people, the thing that holds them back from creating appropriate and successful systems is normally themselves. They either cannot envision a system that's large enough or secondly, they don't trust the person they're going to give the power to, and they don't give enough power to them to be able to run whatever operation they need them to do successfully. Because what you don't want to have is a system where someone is coming back and checking with you every 30 seconds. That's not really a system. A system is, (laughs) you got this, we're going to talk to each other maybe once a week, make sure everything's still cool. And then after we do a couple of those weekly meetings, it becomes twice a month and then once a month. And then eventually it's just, you're cool, I'm cool, here's your cut of the check, and we move on. At least that's how my systems become. There, there's very little checking in once we have a mature partnership established. Um, you know, Basically, I'll tell someone, hey, this is our new house. Normally, they've never walked through it. They, sometimes they don't even watch the video of it. They just go, all right, how much are we making on it? Checks will start coming in the two months, you know, whenever the tenant's in there. And that's basically how, um, how, how a mature system should be. I don't care who who they're mailing or how they're doing their mailers or Instagrams or whatever, how they're doing their advertising. I just care that works. So how it's done, it doesn't really matter to me. So why should I care? No, you shouldn't care. 
You, you know, the whole thing is, and you talk about, you know, the systems, how we, the systems have to run themselves in a way, right? Mm-hmm. So and the other thing that, that kind of caught me off guard, I thought you were going to say you get 200 emails a day. You said 200 a week. Mm-hmm. You're not getting enough email. Just kidding. Oh, no, I'm getting too many emails. <laughs> In an ideal world, I'd have four. I get over 200 a day. Yeah, no, that, that's irrelevant. I, I click the unsubscribe button faster than anyone else that I know. I am I, for, to connect with the managing. I'm one of these believers in fire people on the first thing they do wrong. Mm-hmm. If you can't see yourself working with someone a year from now, don't work with them today. Right. And that is how I have seen um, really great things work. And, and I believe I've avoided more pitfalls than I could imagine under that system. But the joy of getting them out of my life is I don't know how bad it could have gotten, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. That's a system too, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So how do, you, how do you, and we're talking about systems, right? And, and you have several different businesses. How do you set somebody up? to learn a system it's through habits right through mm-hmm. like when you first come in this is the first thing you do this is the second thing you do this is the third thing you do so systematizing everything so that it becomes a habit for them in the beginning of course they get a learning curve for anybody mm-hmm. let's say they've never done it and all of a sudden it just routine. it becomes routine so it's it's a habit but then also do you have check marks do you have things that you go by to create that system long story short it's the incentivization process i do um, I really do not agree with hourly wages. It's what everyone does because they're easy and they're basic. So let's just do what everything else does. It's not how I run anything. Mm. Everything I've done is tax specific. You get this done, you get paid this much. And you know, for everyone else, every single position, it's it's tweaked. Of course. But like for my contractors, we walk into a house and say, "This is the scope. This is what you got to do. This task pays you this much. Pays you this much. This much." And I let them be professionals because they are contractors about what order they want to do it in. Because I really don't care what order. I just care that when I come back, when the, the agreement is done, that everything's going to be done. And you know, we'll come through every once in a while, um, normally on Fridays, where they go, okay, I got this, this, this done. Give me a check, which is fine. I mean, that's the agreement we have. But if it's not done, they don't get a check. And I've, I've had people fighting and pleading with me. Um, saying that if I don't get this check, I'm going to be put in jail for the weekend for not paying child support. And I go, well, you should have got that done. Well, guess what? Next week, the thing was done. And then so was everything else. And I never had that problem again. Um, I have another crew where it didn't get done and then it compiled and they took themselves out of my life. So I look at most firings like that. They choose to either step up or step out. Mm. And at the end of the day, they were adults. They agreed to the original system we had i didn't change it midstream this is what it was from the beginning and you didn't perform well that's on you like at at the end of the day i did everything i possibly could for you um and you didn't do it that's not my problem anymore i mean it is my problem that my house isn't done but i have no reason to feel guilt within me for getting rid of you i now had the different problem of having to replace you which in some people's heads is monumentally huge and depending upon where the economy is sometimes it's bigger than it's not but in normal times, it's not that big of a deal. There will be someone else who wants to do this work and is capable. Right. You know, you're, you're not recruiting Albert Einstein to make the nuclear bomb for you here. There's lots of guys that can do anything you need to be done in your business. You just need to figure out how to go get them. Mm-hmm. And for most people, that's a system within itself. Um, you just, and most people, it just I go to a website and there's 20 guys here. I just call a couple of them up, figure out what I want. Um, and that's for 
any industry. I mean, Indeed oh, yeah. is great like that at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I own a wood shop, so yeah, I uh, I only I only do work when it's um, I don't advertise. It's only by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. People just come to me because they want the quality that I I can perform. But so when you think about real estate, mm-hmm. do you own locally or do you own in other states? All of my stuff is local because I I walk through all the properties myself, select which ones I want. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why it's local. Um, first off is it's very difficult to buy in a different area and be successful. Um, it just is. I, I know that the people have claimed that it's the easiest thing in the world. You just go by the numbers and blah, blah, blah. I have seen what foreign investors, there's a lot of hedge funds that own things here in the Pittsburgh area. And they're not getting the most out of these properties. In most cases, they're actually diminishing its value. So while on paper, they might be making a couple hundred bucks a month. And for a hedge fund, that might be a decent enough return. I have no idea. We multiply it across you know, billions of dollars worth of assets. But for me, I know I can get more with my own expertise. I also can buy the thing at a way better rate, which is the number one way to increase your profitability in real estate is buy the house for less money. That requires a whole lot of skill that I really can't break down into an hour. But the long story short is that's why I do everything here. All of my talent is here. Plus, in Pittsburgh, there are things that are very relevant, that are irrelevant in other parts of the countries. And conversely, things that don't matter at all here that are incredibly relevant. I was talking to a guy from Arizona um, a couple of weeks ago. and He was telling me about how important windows are to them. Because in Arizona, there's pretty views basically everywhere. The sky is always clear. And they don't have basically any humidity. Well, in Pittsburgh, windows are essentially irrelevant. Because as long as they keep the hot, the hot and cold out and on the right side of the wall, every single day becomes cloudy at 3 o'clock. And there's no real awesome views. I mean, it doesn't matter where you're at. That's what Western Pennsylvania is. But what does matter here is foundations. Because we have all these rivers here which also means we have all kinds of hills and having a bad foundation and a house on a hillside is not good. And they're really expensive to fix and you never get your money back because they're expected. So in Arizona, basically everything's built on a slab. So there is no foundation issues. So that different in skill set, well, I just explained it is something most people would never even contemplate. Like, like, like you, you have to be in an area to learn this stuff and know what's actually relevant and important. And that's why I don't want to do in other places, Mm. not to mention the legal system of each state legal system is incredibly different. I am definitely playing mine on hard mode because Pennsylvania is the fifth hardest state to evict someone in. But it makes me want to go to the Confederacy, literally any of them, um, (laughs) to to operate down there. But um, I'm here. This is where my family is. And this is where we're going to do it. And if I got to do it on hard mode, so be it. Sometimes it's better to learn how to do things on hard mode. So when I build another business that is level for everywhere, I'm already used to swimming against the current. I can make some things better and gives me a head start in other aspects. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, when you think about knowing the industry, that's, that's, that's already an insight that most people don't really want to know. And the fact that you understand what's important for a house, a foundation, the windows and how they are and everything that goes with, with, owning a home. So it seems to me as an entrepreneur that you have so many avenues open to you mm-hmm. because you can become a coach, to teach people how to buy houses. You can teach people how to flip them. Now, what in your 
expertise for you personally? What's better, flip or own and rent? Well, my entire business was created for the residual income. Mm. Um, and actually, what got, makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it was built for. Because whenever I started, this was 2011, basically the only industries that I saw that did residual income revenue streams at that time were your utilities your mortgage and your rent. And that was basically it. This wasn't like now when you can have subscription-based services for like all the software stuff you can buy. So I knew I wanted residual income and the rentals was how it's going to get there. But by the nature of it being a very capital intensive industry, you have to have money to be able to, to acquire these rentals for the long haul. So I actually started with flips and then around 2017, all three of my crews fired themselves. And that was the last flip I did was in 2017. I've been doing rentals the whole way along the way. Um, on that note, my rentals aren't true rentals. I, I, I'm in a minority in this area and in this country where the majority of my properties are actually the tenant has the right of purchasing the property and they eventually are going to buy it from me. Mm. And this is important for all kinds of these reasons with systems that we discussed earlier. As you mentioned in your example there with your friend living above you, they let the house essentially rot, rot itself away by not fixing the roof, not even mentioning the roof. Most tenants are that way because most tenants figure, well, I'll be out in a year. It'll be his problem anyway. I don't want to deal with the hassle of the thing fixing up while I'm here. So it's not in their best interest to tell you about a big problem. Plus there's the fear that they're going to blame for something and they don't want to deal with any of that. So I take all that off the table. I'm dealing specifically with people who want to buy the house. It's a problem because I can only deal with single family houses. Hmm. So it's very hard to scale it that way. It's constantly working to scale it. But the upside of it is every single liability with that property, with the exception of taxes, because I had sold to pay the taxes, everything else is on the tenant. The tenant is responsible for shoveling the snow, cutting the grass, maintaining the property. But they also get the upside of if they want to make their girl's room Barbie pink, they can paint it. If they want to upgrade the kitchen or something, they can do that. They want to do whatever, basically. It's their house, and I treat it their house. So I'm looking for a very specific type of tenant. Obviously, your run-of-the-mill college kid does not want this type of arrangement. <laughs> but the people who I end up selecting all are people who have good jobs but no credit. And typically, they fall into one of two groups. Either A, they had no idea how a credit card worked when they were younger, and they're trying to get out of it. Or B, their divorce attorney told them to kill their credit. And that's the more common group I have. So inevitably, I'm dealing with a lot of people who are dealing with a turmoil part of their life, and they just want stability. And the way that I am as a landlord is I tell them this is no longer a buyer-seller relationship or a a tenant-landlord relationship. Yes, you are signing a lease, but what it is, it is a buyer-seller relationship. When you own this house, you're not going to call up your mortgage company and say, hey, I have a leaky pipe, come fix it. No, you're going to figure it out yourself. And that's the expectation that is set from the beginning. And it really makes life a whole lot easier as we're moving forward here because they know they're going to get it. And really the only, COVID aside, the only time my tenants don't buy the house is whenever it's normally the the single mother ends up finding a new guy and she wants to move to his house, which at the end of the day, isn't the end of the world. It's just, well, it didn't work out. It's it's not that I don't I I call that a no fault mistake. You know, everyone was acting in good faith. You just had a different life choice, that ended up being a little better. You're gonna move to his house. All the power to you. 
Um, so it's so in the other thing is when I get those houses back, rarely are they destroyed. Like, like, like normally there, there's almost a sense of thank you from tenant to landlord that you don't normally get in a standard tenant landlord relationship. So what got me here was five years of dealing with legal stuff. As I mentioned, I live, live in Pennsylvania where the law is not fun. There's a couple of congressional laws thrown in there too, but five years of dealing with a lawyer of trying to figure out a way to legally do this because the concept isn't unique or fun. And I had tried to do it a couple of ways and I had done it wrong and lawyers ripped the thing apart or banks didn't want to honor it and give them the mortgage on the back end. Hmm. So going through dotting all the I's across the T's took five years and a lot of conversations with lawyers. But once we have it, is that these tenants, the, the, they end up loving the house, they treat it better, and it changes my mindset of a, of a landlord. When I first sit down with someone, I don't have the mindset of, you're going to destroy this house, it's just a matter of when. It's, you're going to buy this house and make it yours, let's get there as quickly as possible. And for mine, it's such a mindset shift from most landlords, A, it makes it a lot easier for me to to have life, because I have less negativity, because I'm not looking at everyone as a potential problem, I'm looking at them as a solution and, and I'm giving them peace and stability in a time of chaos of their lives. And I'm also letting them essentially build golden handcuffs each day. They put more equity in that house, the more they're going to want to keep it. Right. So, which also means they're going to pay the rent on time and all that fun stuff. And also I outsource the rent collection. I have a third party that does that for me. So when I tell them you're only going to see me again, if I give you the deed or if you're getting evicted, I mean it. And that's how you can really systematize the house. And in the real estate world, my entire life is creating on getting new revenue. Either I'm buying a new house or putting a tenant in that new house, or I'm really not doing real estate that day. But if I am, I'm only doing something that is tying me to eventual profits and no more showing up to a tenant's house that's already there and costing me money, which is what every landlord experience. Every time you go and see another tenant, it costs you money. Period. Um, that's why a lot of landlords just stop wanting to go see their tenants. But you gave that illustration before. What inevitably happens to all of them is your asset gets destroyed. So there's no upside. And, and for a lot of people, that hurdle is a mental grasp that most people don't even think of before they step into the world of just being a landlord. You know, a, a couple of things that, that you said, one, one of them was, this is the first time you'll see me and the other time is at the end of our relationship. I had a friend of mine here in New York. He owned a bunch of properties and, and he got smart. What he did is he went to a place. He saw the biggest guy possible, big, heavy guy, strong guy. He was like six foot nine. And he goes, you're going to make a lot of money with me. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, I need you to collect rent for me. So that's what he would tell the, the tenants. He goes, hi, this is the last time you'll ever meet unless you're getting evicted. But he used to do rentals only. So he used to give him the key. Mm-hmm. He goes, this is John. I will forget his name. He goes, this is John. He'll be collecting the rent every month on the first. <laughs> and you don't want to get John mad. And he was the nastiest, craziest looking guy. And John would just nod. And then every month, <laughs> he'd always get collect. He'd always get his rent, right? But, you know, it, it was a scared tactic, but it worked for him, you know? Yeah, no, it, sometimes it does work. I use John, I use apartments.com. So it's Jeff Goldblum either giving you a smiley email or a sad email. Yeah. But also there's all kinds of economic ramifications of bouncing a check. So, yeah. and, and those become all the tenants problem because 
you know, the bank charges you a fee, apartments.com charges you a fee. They do it again and five days later, like it really can become hell for missing rent ends up costing you an extra 300 bucks. And again, it's probably a scare tactic if you look at it from that way, just instead of being a physically imposing scare, it's an economically imposing scare. But at the end of the day, when I said before, you either have to get down to your tenant's level or have a system that gets down to your tenant's level, this is how it works. That doesn't mean that your landlord who hired the big bouncer was a bad person. It means he was smart. He didn't want to deal with excuses. And if you have the guy who looks like the undertaker showing up at your door, people are going to be a little bit different than if you would show up yourself. That's just the way life is. And my friend was not a tall guy or, you know, muscular or anything like that. So, I mean, he was pretty smart with that way. Let me ask you a question. So mm-hmm. what is the, the time length that it would take for somebody? Let's say they, they rent it on the 15th or whatever, the first of next month, right? Mm-hmm. So is there a time? Is it a three-year, five-year, 10-year that they get to come in and buy it? Or you said earlier... Let's get it as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Pennsylvania is not awesome. So they can't have equity in the house really at any point until it's theirs because Pennsylvania is great like that. Super smart. Um, But at any rate, that's that's over there. So what, what they're actually buying is the right to buy the house. And at any point that a mortgage will give them the money to buy the house, it's theirs. So I give them the incentive of doing it in two main ways. First, um, their rent is higher than what it will be whenever they get their mortgage. At basically any interest rate that they get approved at, it will be cheaper for them to move forward and get the mortgage than it will be to keep paying me rent. So once it once that gets set into, I'm like, oh, I'm going to save a couple of hundred bucks every month. And all I got to do is talk to this credit guy that you referred me to, and then listen to him for however long that takes. And then boom. It's worth it. They can see the end of the tunnel where I'm going to make more money. Um, and that's great. Um, so uh, so that's how I really kind of just present it. Because all of the expenses that they're going to have as the property owner, which primarily are the, the taxes, they're already baked into the rent. So like I said, it, 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 it's more beneficial for them to end up owning it. It's more beneficial to me because I basically get 10 years worth of rent in one day. That's a cool day. Um, but the problem for me is I got to keep replacing those houses which in a non-covid world was easy now it's uh, a little bit different but that's that's again not something i can control you just got to live with what you got yeah so let's go ahead and talk about um your podcast you you have one right Mm -hmm. and that's a faith-based podcast but then you're starting another one it's Mm sports-based almost two different worlds isn't it yeah it is so so Father Joe is the faith-based one, as he said there, and it's myself and then a Catholic priest. His name is Father Bonavis Hicks, hence the Father and Joe component of it. Uh, one thing with me is I'm not really creative in names, just mm-hmm. up front. Um, so, but what we do is we recognize when we started this podcast in 2017 that in this country, the transition between Obama to Trump was not smooth or awesome, no matter how you want to cut this. Basically, it was portrayed that the nation became either Fox people or CNN people. And you don't talk to the other side. You just make them anarchy and chaos. Hmm. The real reality is most people didn't care. But that's how it was portrayed constantly, especially if you went on the Twitter or any of the other social networks. So in global human history terms, anytime a culture or civilization has turned part of its culture 
against another part without being willing to communicate with each other, it has always resulted in one of three things at the end of that road. That country goes to war with someone else. That country has a civil war within itself. Or that country has a genocide, which is just a one-sided civil war. That's what always ends up happening. It's just how long does it take till it gets there? But there are plenty of examples where countries were where we are now, but they figured out how to talk to each other and work things out. In fact, America's had that happen a couple of times throughout its history. So that's really what we wanted to discuss. We, we started with the simple fact that the Catholic Church has seen the good and bad ways that this human nature element can happen. And what can we do about it? So that's really what each conversation is, how to have a better relationship starting with ourselves. That also includes our relationship with God. But once the relationship with ourselves can start improving, then becomes the relationship with those around us. And then our circle around us eventually keeps growing until it becomes the entire country. So that I'm willing to hear something that I don't want to hear, and it's okay. Mm. And when most people hear it's a conversation about God or Jesus, they get this irk inside them that they just don't want to talk about, let alone see the light of day. They want to keep it buried inside them because it's something they did when they were younger and they just don't want to address it. And that irk or pain or whatever you want to call it is what keeps a lot of people from wanting to have conversations like this because there's been so many examples of people just pounding on that pain until you listen to them. And that is the absolute worst way to discuss about anything that is faith-based. So we don't do that at all. We, 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 again, we start with the relationship that you have within yourself and how to make that better. Now, is each specific issue or episode rather about that? No, we, we talk about all kinds of different things, but they all kind of get to that in one capacity or another. So we've done all kinds of different episodes, like the fact that it's a religion of life, but this crazy guy in over Russia just started a war killing people. Mm-hmm. If he didn't exist, this war wouldn't happen. So on the one time, I'm, I'm essentially asking, if we just assassinated Putin, this war wouldn't be here and more people would be alive. Is that something that our faith would, you know, say oh, wow. to do or not? Yeah. And we did the entire episode and series on that. So um, it, it, and these are then we've gotten all the way down to people that say, you know, I can intellectually grasp the concept of God, but I don't feel it in my day to day life. And that's a lot of people out in the world like that. And we've done a lot of episodes discussing that. And then as well as individual things that people have had happen to them earlier in their life, you know, we, we kind of go in some broad categories in those that, you know, have happened and we wish we didn't. How can we grow within ourselves to move forward? And it is all within the framework of the relationship that you have with God. Again, I'm talking with a Catholic priest. It kind of has to be. But as you go through the experience of it, you realize that it's a very nurturing and healthy way to elevate yourself in a ways that you never thought you would. And it does translate to every other aspect of life and building systems that we discussed before. You know, really, it, it, we, there's seven main virtues in, in, in the faith, any Christian faith, really. It's faith, faith, hope, and love. We don't get into those a whole lot. I mean, we do because every once in a while we cite the Bible or whatever. Uh, but normally we're, we're focusing on, or the question, we're focusing on prudence, temperance, justice, and courage, which are the cardinal virtues. Those are the ones that you actually can act upon and see. 
having faith, you can't really show to someone else. Like, oh, look how if you're strong, you'd be like, oh, I can bench 400 pounds. You can see it. I got muscles. Faith doesn't work that way. You can have a child having faith. You can have Mother Teresa having faith. Both look uh, brittle. You both look frail and brittle, but they're both immensely faithful. There's no real way to tell that. But you can tell when you're dealing with someone who is prudent. And what prudence is, is basically becoming more knowledgeable about your subject matter. So if you want to become more knowledgeable about being a manager, watching podcasts like this, you know, becoming open to ideas and actually kind of play them through in their mind, implementing as many real life variables as possible, how will this really work out? So if I'm going to have this conversation that I'm going to have to tell this person, basically, you need to get better or you need to get out. How can I have that conversation and think about it beforehand to be better prepared for it? in a way that will be nurturing, but effective. That process is the exercise of the virtue of prudence. And then justice is, am I doing this conversation because of an artificial means I can see their economic status, their gender, their whatever, or is it because of what their quality of work actually is? And that's what justice is. Justice inevitably brings you to the bedrock of any real problem. See, most people who have a real problem don't want to talk about it. They want to make it something else. Boss doesn't like me because he's racist. Boss doesn't like me um, because of my hair color or whatever. No, it's probably just because you're a really bad employee. And justice inevitably will zone the manager into what is the bedrock of the real issue. And then what courage is, is having the wherewithal to say it. You know, Many people will get a thought in their mind that they just need to get out of their body, but they don't know how. Courage is the exercise of getting those words from inside of you to the world. And then the last one is temperance. And temperance is the one that really society is probably lacking the most in America right now. And make an argument, always in America. The the basis of temperance is humility. Humility is true. Yeah, I think that's worldwide, though, not just America. You know? Yeah, well, we take over everything eventually. Um, so... <laughs> Humility is knowing your true place, Mm. not saying that that you need to make yourself small and tiny, nor is it making yourself towering over everyone else. It's based upon what I've actually brought to the table. Where should I be this in the business world? This comes into play with compensation. You know, at the end of the day, I'm bringing this much value. Everyone else that I can see and measure who brings this much value gets paid X. I should be getting paid X as well. And and that's part of where temperance is when acted purest upon. See, temperance gets inconsistently and wrongfully taught sometimes where it says that you should make yourself smaller than everyone else. And that's not what it is. It's making yourself where you truly are. And also on that note, in the big conclusion of, of this little spiel about why it's important to this conversation about making yourself more successful as an entrepreneur or a businessman is that we are all called to make the world better. And the way we do that in modern world is by through economic means. You know, I can't go help someone if I can't help myself. Mm. And that's just a fundamental fact. That's why whenever the airplane's going to crash, you put the mask on yourself before you put it on the person next to you. Our global job is to make ourselves better. And you do that in a lot of ways, but these virtues will fix wounds inside of you that will just make yourself better in day-to-day reactions 
So when inevitably we turn on our mental autopilot and just kind of drift through the day, it'll have already been course corrected to take us to a more prosperous place. And it's one of those things that if you look at some of the happiest people in the world, that's the common thread. They're working those four virtues, whether they explicitly call them that or not, that's what they're doing. It's, it's the virtues that, that are going to keep faith going as well, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because they, they inevitably tie through faith. I mean, you can live a life of just trying to become smart, fair, and just, but inevitably it's going to get called back to the Bible in some capacity. Whether you realize it or not, you are acting in the way that the Bible would teach you to do. Even if you consider yourself an atheist, it, it's, that's just the way it is. I always say atheists, uh, they, they have to believe in something, you know, mm-hmm. so they have faith too. It just is not necessarily the one that you and I call faith. They have a faith in something, right? They have to believe in something. Yeah. That's an element of human nature. Yeah. Everyone inherently believes in something, whether they've given an official name, title, or practice of, of celebrating it. Everyone has that in, in nature. It's human beings. So talk to us about your other podcasts that you, you've said you've recorded a bunch already, right? And you, why did you decide to take on another task, another project? So, um, well, th- there's two main differences aside from obviously the subject matter right. um, between Father and Joe and local football flavor. Father and Joe is essentially a nonprofit podcast. We never went with the mentality of trying to make money with it. It was just to try to get to as many people as possible. Well, somewhere along the way, I learned how to have communications and be decent in recording. You know, when you go to the ones of our first 50 episodes, they're a train wreck. Like we had to redo most of them because they weren't really that good. Neither one of us really knew what we were doing, especially myself, and how to edit a show because I did all the editing, how to do really just set up a show, have a conversation with someone and how to sound intelligent on, on the recording. So uh, it took experience to learn that. So local football flavor, which is the one that's, that's out. You actually can click it now and start watching. It's doing its hard release coming out on opening day of the NFL season here on Thursday of next week. It is a for-profit show. So we are going for sponsors and all of that stuff, trying to get monetized on YouTube. And just that process of learning the algorithms of how to make yourself profitable in the way that YouTube considers yourself profitable is, is a very learning experience. I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm going through it. Um, but the essence of that show, to, to get into the, what it actually is, is every person who's a fan has had this experience of listening to a broadcast or a national pundit talk about their team. And they know they were flat out just lied to. Like that pundit was wrong. They just don't know what they're talking about with my team. And since every fan knows that, why don't we just interview fans who have experienced that so we can get some more direct truth? Because like it or not, fantasy football and gambling is taking over the NFL. It's just a fact. So if I can have more information about a specific team or a way that a coach thinks or addresses a game, that's not normally part of the national conversation, or if it is, it's not normally presented correctly, that will give me an edge or at least joy in watching a broadcaster be wrong. Cause 
I personally like doing that sometimes. Um, so <laughs> the more knowledge we have, well, now I'm winning my fantasy leagues. That's a tangible thing where I get to tell all my friends that you're wrong or I'm winning my bets against a sports book and that's more money in my pocket, which is always nice to be paid to get right. Which at the end of the day is I think why I like gambling. I'm getting paid to be right. You know, if, if there's just taking a random horse and just saying I'm picking number three, uh, I, I don't like that. But when I feel like I have, and knowledge I've thought through how this actually is going to go and you're going to pay me for the way it actually goes. That's incredibly satisfying to me. Uh, and to me, it's not the same as, you know, walking into a casino and just picking a number at a roulette wheel and hoping it lands on you. That is a form of gambling as well. But to me, that's not the kind of gambling that when I think of sports gambling, that's not what it is. And it's not educated. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Oh, there are educated ways to relate, but that's near your corner there. Um, <laughs> what I, what, for, for the sports world, if I know that in the first half, and I, I have not talked to, a, I'll give you a Pittsburgh example because because I know this off, I know this for a fact. As you see, I'm all the Pittsburgh stuff. I know as a Pittsburgh, I couldn't tell. Fan, yeah, <laughs> as a Pittsburgh fan, that Mike Tomlin does not believe in running up the score on an opponent. He just doesn't do it. So if you're in the middle of an in-game watching the Steelers bet, and for some reason the in-game spread becomes more than 10 and a half, almost always, with the glaring exception of Cleveland, he will not run the score up. He does on Cleveland. I don't know why, but he does. So any other game, I would take the opponent plus the 10 and a half in the middle of the game. Because I know that when we get to the end, the Steelers are going to win by six. It's just the way it ends up. So, or they lose, which in either case, I would win the bet. So um, that's just a thing that I know because I have watched the Steelers organization operate my entire life. So that's fun information. I also know whenever we're coming to talking about how is he going to use his players for fantasy football, I know that Najee Harris is never going to get pulled from the game, period. Tomlin does not believe in running two running backs ever. Because Najee Harris is his best player on first down. He's his best player on second down. He's his best player on third down. And Mike Tomlin does not treat football like the way a baseball manager treats a season. He doesn't care if he needs Najee to be good on Tuesday because he doesn't play on Tuesday. He needs Najee to be good next week. It's an entire week where Najee can just relax on the couch. That does not happen. But if it did, it would it'd be fine to him. So he is going to use him every single second that he can. And most coaches in the NFL do not treat their premier running backs that way. So when I'm sitting here in in the upcoming draft that I have tomorrow night, and I know that that Najee Harris is basically projected between being the third running back overall taken and the seventh, that I'm going to take him no matter what. Because the other ones in his group, their coaches don't think that way. In San Diego or in, in LA Chargers, they don't play Eckler every snap. He comes off the field. Same with Minnesota. So at the end of the day, that's an incredible edge to me. I can get someone who should be drafted second or third overall, and I'm going to get him seventh. That's a huge advantage in, in the fantasy football world. So that's the kind of knowledge that we tease from all of the teams that we've discussed. Um, we have discussed the, uh, the Niners so far, Carolina so far, uh, the Giants. The Baltimore's coming up. So, so I'm just going off the ones that the, the ones that have been released are Giants, Carolina, and San Francisco. 
And you think of all these different storylines that are going on with these teams. You know, like the Giants, I'm, I was, God blew me away. The Giants have had the least amount of wins over the last five years. And at the end of the day, their number one hope is just to get the first pick. They've never had the first pick overall, despite having the least amount of wins, which is devastating. Um, if you really think about the statistics of that. Um, so that's all they really want. They, they, they just basically say, Daniel Jones, we know you're never going to be anything. We have belief in the new coaching staff. We want the team to get better, but not good enough to get the first round pick. We basically want to do what Detroit did last year. We look like we're better, but we're not actually winning. And that's basically been the story of Detroit my whole life too. But that's that's a story in itself. So, <laughs> yes. I, so like I said, the, the show is local football flavor. Um, you can find us on YouTube. You can also find us on YouTube shorts. We're also doing some other things that are trying to bring people into football. Because I know in both my life and in my co-host's life, that we've had a lot of people around us normally that we were trying to date um, or eventually marry in some cases that just <laughs> don't enjoy football because they don't understand it. It's almost like the first time you walk up to a craps table at a casino, there's so many moving parts. It's just overwhelming and easier to just walk away. And we're literally launching a series starting tomorrow night, if I could done editing it, <laughs> that uh, will be called the basics of football from from the smallest nugget of what is a snap, nice. what is a wide receiver, all the way up to what is a slant route, what is a go route. And we're, we're covering <laughs> all of that kind of thing. And that's going to be a hundred part YouTube short series, um, which mm. best will be seen in the, on our channel in the playlist. But so you said short, how, how long are your shorts going to be? YouTube requires them to be less than a minute, and they are hard less than a minute. If it's a thousandth of a second or longer, they don't allow it. It is black and white. <laughs> it's got to be less than a minute. So um, so they're all that, but that's why there's going to be – there's already 88 recorded. Um, there's probably going to end up being over 100 because what – So that's going to help promote – Promote both the channel and just give general education because, you know, I think we all know someone that – we wish was got engaged in the football experience with us, but they don't because the knowledge barrier seems overwhelming. And yes, there's a lot of things that, that we make assumptions of. And, and I had this going through this of, Oh, we didn't talk about that yet. We, we didn't talk about what special teams are yet. Like we, we talked about the kicker and the punter, but we just said they're part of the special teams. We should actually say explicitly what they are. So it's a lot of 20 to 40 seconds explicit what is this? And they all build upon each other so that at the end of it, you can sit down and watch a game and go, okay, I understand what the offense is trying to accomplish. They're trying to get more yards and get this thing called a first down so they can stay out there longer. And if they stay out there longer, they have a better chance of getting points. And I also... So let me ask you, Rocky, w w when you're doing this, this, these shorts, are you actually putting clips from the NFL? In and are you allowed in the shorts? We are not just because a um, my subscription is for the upcoming season hasn't started yet. So I, I, I have not gone through the back. But what it is, is like when I'm discussing what a cover one defense is or what a slant route is. I have an illustration that I drew myself. And since I did it, it's mm. legal. I can do whatever I want with it is me drawing what the play is and how it functions. So it's the way that you would draw it up on a blackboard with the old school, right. you know, letters of this is what a position is right. rather than a picture of Aaron Rodgers. It just says QB. Right. 
So, yeah, it, there are nice little illustrations in it, but when we do our main broadcast, which are outside the short realms, is when I'm interviewing the fans. Those are normally our episodes, and those then have, like, the guy from Baltimore, he gets way into Lamar Jackson. He kind of has to. There's nothing else going on in Baltimore. Um, so <laughs> we have clips of Lamar, you know, doing crazy runs and spins and missing the broadside of the bar when he tries to pass. But how are you able to do that without copyright infringement? Um, well, there's this fun thing on YouTube that says if you deeply edit a content and there's time limits on it, I think it's like minute 20 or something like that. It's okay. So it's deeply edited in the fact that, A, I screenshot into a very specific play. And also, there's no content from the actual broad. Aside from, there's only the visual content. None of the audio from the announcers of the game is there. It's our conversation coming over. Also, I'm not trying to blur out Fox or CBS or Amazon, whoever was broadcasting the game. So I'm giving full credit to the people who did the recording rights of it. And this is not unique to me. I mean, you can go on and watch. Right. No, I, I'm aware. Basically, any, any episode. So, um, for like one with San Francisco, I personally have had a problem in the fantasy football world with receivers that are undependable. Basically, these guys that will give you huge points one game and then nothing the, the next game. And Brandon Ayuk with the Niners is one of these guys. And. Mm. Um, I literally before and after, because I was trying to get some specific sites from it, I watched um, another YouTuber has put up every single time Brandon Ayuk has touched the ball in an NFL game. So it's deeply edited in the sense that it's just his place. Um, It was like half an hour long, but I was like, Mm. everything I thought about him was 100% correct before and after that conversation. Because all of his plays are happening in the same four games. The rest of them, he's just like getting stuff for nothing. I was like, this is exactly what I knew this guy was. But I, it's always nice talking to a local fan telling you um, stuff there. And the Niners guy also did draw some nice comparisons between their new quarterback, Trey Lance, who will be starting this year, and Colin Kaepernick, who obviously had his own episodes. He Colin Kaepernick is one of the most interesting case studies of the NFL. He um, he he's, he's very legitimate to to – so what Lamar Jackson is dealing with is that freak athlete can do whatever he wants on the football field, but not a good quarterback because he, he wasn't able to do read progressions. And he's almost like a kid who was too gifted. He knew he could run away from anyone who was trying to tackle him. So why spend the extra effort to learn how to become a better passer? If the first guy I'm looking at is open, I'll give him the ball. Cool. If not, I'm not going to. And then he would just run. Well, that works really good when you're playing essentially a D2 school in Nevada. It works really, really good at high school. But in the NFL, it doesn't work good because eventually the middle linebacker is going to realize as long as my corner over there and if I can trust him to cover the first receiver, I'm just going to light this guy up because he's going to run right at me. And that is a lot of what kept him from coming back to the NFL. The off-field stuff is what got him paid by suing the NFL by claiming he was blacklisted. But the end of the day was he wasn't a good quarterback and he was too arrogant to play wide receiver. That That's the true football between the lines story of what Colin Kaepernick was. And to a very real extent, that's what Baltimore is going through um, because they know he can't throw the ball to receivers that are tightly covered. 
and they don't even try to have Lamar Jackson throw the ball to tightly covered receivers. And the thing is, other receivers in the NFL know that, and they don't want to go there. So it's a self-perpetuating spiral. He's getting worse and worse receivers to throw to, and he doesn't want to throw to them. So is it he doesn't want to throw to them because they're not any good, which is the way the NFL network tries to sell the story. If he just had good receivers, he would throw it to them. Or is it the truth that he's not accurate enough to throw it to them? And I'm pretty sure he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn if he really had to. So, um, yes, that is definitely coming from a Steelers perspective to the Ravens quarterback. Let's have all biases disclosed there. But it's also not too far from the analytical truth either. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, great insight, you know, by the way, and I think you're going to have a very successful show. So let, let me ask you, going back to, you know, your real estate and everything you're doing, right? You, you seem extremely knowledgeable. Have you ever considered coaching people in what you do? I do in the sense that I bring on partners and I'm teaching them how the business works. You teach, so you're teaching the partners, but you're not teaching. So they're, they're truly invested. Yeah, they're all equity stake partners. But with that being said, it's not to the same extent that you're doing it because it's they're taking their part of the world, which is filling my calendar. And I help them do that, but I'm not invested in it day to day. And they don't come with me doing my side of the world. So in that regards, it's I'm essentially hiring you to fill my calendar, but I'm putting you invested in the game. So going back to having them systemize and caring about their product, rather than paying them per lead on my calendar, they just get paid a percentage of the money we make on the back end, which is much better for everyone involved. They get paid more. I get better results. I'm not wasting my time as much. To me, it's worth me paying them more money not to waste my time. Um, Most entrepreneurs are too afraid to jump over that hurdle at some point, they're, they're too worried about the expense side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. And that is the number one way to kill your inevitable growth. Don't worry about expenses, only worry about the revenue. Now, granted, your expenses need to be directly correlated to increasing revenue. Oh, without a doubt. You don't want to have stupid expenses that do not increase revenue. But <laughs> as long as your expenses have a positive multiplier on how much revenue you should ma- you're going to make, you should want to have more and more of those expenses because it's going to make you have more revenue. And because it's a positive multiplier, more net profit. And that's eventually how you grow and scale yourself. So looking at expenses only is a way to kill yourself unless you're looking at it through the prism of, is it actually profitable? Because you do have to do that analysis. Is this oh, without a doubt. That's actually giving me a return on my investment. You need your ROI. You know, that that's one of the most important things in any business, you know. Oh, yeah. A- am I making money or am I, is this a hobby? You know, I just had a conversation with, with a client and I said to him, I said, what are you doing? He's charging like nothing to his clients. And I said, so you have a hobby? He goes, no, this is a business. I'm like, no, it's not. I said, you have a hobby. I said, you're not charging even fair market value. You're charging like way low. And anybody who's who's doing business with you, they, they don't care about, they don't care about the knowledge you're giving them. And he's afraid if he raises his prices, he's going to lose them all. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they don't value you for what you're giving them mm-hmm. because no one is charging what you're charging. I, they're getting it 1970 prices. <laughs> <laughs> 
come come up to at least 2010, charge them something, right? So when we think about the return on our investment, that's what business is truly Mm -hmm. about. We do business for a couple of reasons, right? One is because we have a passion for it. And the other one, because we need to make a living. We need to be able to pay our mortgage or our rent, and we need to be able to buy food. And if we decide we're going to take a vacation, and we shouldn't be working just to work and not live, right? Because then what are you doing? Mm-hmm. At the end of your life, what did you do? All you did was work and you didn't live. Mm-hmm. And that's a waste of your time. And what you're describing there is something that's incredibly common. It, it, it's, it stems from two deficiencies from, from my standpoint of having been doing this for over a decade. The first is is a complete and utter fear of your own skill set of being able to sell. Mm-hmm. So you you don't really know how to sell. So you're and we talked about yeah. Selling. So you're resorting to your panic mode of just not trying to sell. Effectively, what you're doing is punting by charging nothing, and that's that's not a strategy. That that's a way to fail you and potentially your entire industry, depending upon how big you are. So 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 cutting your price and being a sales a price based salesman is horrible. And I could tell you firsthand that price does not drive most sales. Every single property I have bought since 2013 has been significantly below what market says it should have been. Every single one of them. And the reason is, is because the person who's selling the house, money wasn't their most important thing. And most of us can see this from like a consumer standpoint. I can go online right now and I can find a perfect TV, uh, exact same TV on Amazon and on Best Buy. And depending upon where I'm at in my life, Best Amazon will get it to my house in two days and it will be cheaper. But if it's the morning of the Super Bowl and I need my TV because it just broke, I'm driving to Best Buy, paying an extra 20% because I want it now. Now, at the end of the day, that decision was not made based upon price. It was made because I didn't want to have the pain of not being able to watch the Super Bowl. And you know, so many of us as buyers can come up with an example of that. You know, at the end of the day, do you want to have any peanut butter or do you want to have the name brand that you grew up with that you remember your mom making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? So that's not a price decision. That's an emotional decision. And to be successful at sales, sorry not to go into a whole sales thing here, but to be successful sales, you have to figure out how to customer to deviate into emotion and away from dollars and cents. And there, there's a skill set to that, that, that certainly can be taught because I've learned it. Um, that's that. So I, I mentioned at the start of this, this answer was that, that your example of your client there had two shortcomings. The first was not having confidence in the sales ability. And the second is being over-invested in your business, having your identity wrapped up into what your business is. And you gave the example there of you're not living if if you're just working all the time. And this answer really comes from doing Father and Joe for so long is that you're not defined by one thing. You're actually defined by what your relationships are. So if you're running your business poorly and you're bringing everyone in your immediate circle and your employees down, your business is having a negative effect on your relationships. And the best way to make your life better is not to add an extra zero to your paycheck. It's to increase the relationships within your life. And really, at the end of the day, dollars eventually will follow that if you execute it. 
but making better relationships, starting with yourself and then starting with the immediate people you choose to have better relationships with. And then it just naturally grows and flows from there. Um, but life is really evaluated from any psychologist who is, has been able to pinpoint why people are happier or not happier. Mm-hmm. It ends up being with the quality of their relationships, not the quantity, the quality of their relationships, especially the relationship they have with themselves. Yeah, it's definitely not money because, and you said it's relationships and who do you want there at the end of your life? If right now you can put an ear to your eulogy and hear what people are going to say about you, what are they going to say? What do you want that last message about you to be for others to hear? What are the words that people are going to say about you? Are they going to say, oh, yeah, he just worked. He didn't make time for his family, his friends, or anything else. Or he, he was a good provider, but he truly was a family person. He was a great friend. He, he was somebody who always was there to lend a hand, to be present. Because if we're not present, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Anything. Like you today were very present with me, and I appreciate that. Well, I, I try to be. You know, there's such a... Yeah. Such a notion in our lives, and I think that the phones don't help this at all, to just kind of click autopilot. Just let our mind just kind of drift. And I I suppose it has to be a human nature thing, because it's not like we are special here sitting in 2020 compared to people from 1920. There just has to be an element of when your mind is overwhelmed, it just kind of just goes through the motions. And that isn't really an engaged way of living, as you just discussed here. And it really can can be off-putting to a lot of people. And it certainly is not productive in, in, in A, in an economic productivity point, but nor in a more important way from a relationship standpoint. So being conscious and cognizance of what you're doing right now um, is very important. And thinking about that process of how can I become more engaged, that is, like I said, that's an element of living the virtue of prudence, even if you don't realize you're doing it. So. Having thought processes of how am I going to have a better relationship and a game plan for that is very important. And that exercise you just gave of what will people think of me after I'm gone is a very sobering and great way to do this. You know, at the end of the day, are people going to think this of me or not? And you can make it so that people have to think that of you, good or bad. You know, has anyone ever told a story of Hitler and had to be positive? No, because the way he lived his life, he basically ended up so it wouldn't be. All right. Well, think of someone that was important in your life. How did they make it positive to them? And what can you emulate in your actions today? And it doesn't really... Look at Walt Disney. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't really matter what your old was. It matters what you do now. You know, most people think of Winston Churchill as a positive figure, someone who, who saved England from being destroyed. Well, the first half of his life was not awesome um, by, by any real stretch or measure. It doesn't take a whole lot of squinting to see that. But he was able to have a pivot point and change towards the better. And it doesn't matter how bad your yesterday was. We all have that capability of, of trying to move forward. Now, sometimes it's hard because the further you get down a, a negative direction, the more you have to make up to get to a positive direction. But you can do it. And all of us have that capability of doing it. And that is really part of the relationship essence that we do talk with in Father and Joe of, of recognizing we all are capable and then how do we go about doing this? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Joe, I want to thank you for today. I mean, I had a blast. And you, you definitely are someone to be reckoned with when it comes to real estate, right? Mm-hmm. And, and also the fact that you know your stuff. And, and obviously, you do your research, too, because you're not just coming in and just doing things. And you have systems set up. So I'm sure you also set up systems. And we even talked earlier how you're going to get, you know, blow up your YouTube. You're going to do all these things, but it's systematic. That's why you already have 88 shorts mm-hmm. uh, recorded. You have what? 12 left. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's mostly edited. Yeah, but yeah, like I said, so, so, so exactly it is. is um, my systems, some of which were born by trial and error, though. I, I don't want to make it sound like... Usually, they, that, those are the best systems because you figure out what does work. Yes. And then you follow up. Yes, yes. So I, I don't want to make it sound like I just sat down at my desk and held my hands like Professor Xavier and everything came to me. It was, <laughs> yeah, right. There is a lot of pre thought about how am I going to go about this? Like, don't get me wrong. Like, like I look at, at a chair and I got the core concepts of how, where each post go and where each beam goes. Mm. But there is a little bit of trial error about the order they go sometimes. And the same is true with the business system. So I, I don't want to make it seem like, a, it's all trial and error because there certainly is a premeditated thought process of what do I want to accomplish and what are the resources at my disposal to do that. And then there is some trial and error of how do we put it together? Because I am certain if I was a trillionaire, I would do things different than the way I do them now. Likewise, if I had zero money and was starting from scratch, I would do them the way I do it now, just based upon the resources I had at my disposal. And I think being realistic to that element is very important because you don't want to put yourself in a different zone than where you're at because it will ultimately be inefficient in some capacity in one way or another. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I appreciate you saying that. What's one advice that you would give someone, whether they're looking to get into a podcasting, a real estate, or just own their own business? What's one advice? We already talked about it, right? sales salesmanship right yeah (laughs) that would be that would be the first thing is is either learn how to sell yourself or be willing to cut a big check to someone who can sell and make it a commission-based check do not just pay them to show up make it based upon results and from a management standpoint that's really my number one advice figure out a way to compensate your employees based upon what you want them to do not based upon showing up based upon what you want them to do. And then maybe you give them penalties, docs and pay for doing things you don't want them to do, which at the end of the day guides them to being the employee you want. And then evaluate it. Is my structure of payment, incentive and disincentive taking them to where I want or not? Because most people are like water. They will go down the route of incentivization or avoiding disincentivization. It's just, is your funnel putting them where you want it to end up? And that's on you as the creator of the compensation package. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, thank you so much. I mean, uh, this has been great. So what advice? So who's going to win the Super Bowl? Uh, well, um, not, not, not the Bengals. I can tell you that right now. Um, the Bengals are going to have a major step backwards. Um, they actually would be, if there's one candidate that made the playoffs last year, that might vote for them not to make it this year would be Um, and i say that strictly because the afc north is the only division in football with two guaranteed hall of fame coaches in it 
between us in Pittsburgh with Mike Tomlin and down in Baltimore, as much as I don't want to admit it, they have a Hall of Fame coach as well. Um, so with that being said, last year, Cincinnati collectively beat the Steelers and Baltimore each by 60 points. Their head coach does not understand that concept of when you're the little brother and the first time you show up, you do not try to kill the big brother in the first fight. Um, you try to gradually learn how to do it. So the Bengals had essentially just rolled through this division and all these two Hall of Fame coaches have been doing in the offseason is figuring out how to stop the inferior coaching staff of Cincinnati. Yes, they have a great wide receiver and they have a very, very above average quarterback, but they do not have a good coaching staff and they are going to get ripped apart by two Hall of Fame coaches. So the Bengals would, would be the one I would say not to make the thing. Um, obviously, it's hard to say Buffalo is not going to be in the Super Bowl. Buffalo is a great coaching staff, absolute tremendous offense, um, and, and certainly a serviceable defense. So from the AFC, I would say that bu- Buffalo would be in it. The NFC is much more up and down, um, but I do believe that as we are getting closer and closer to the Rodgers experience ending, that he is going to get back to another one. So I think at the end of the day that the Super Bowl will be Buffalo and Green Bay with Buffalo taking it. Hmm. All right, we're gonna hold you. Uh, Fair enough. See what happens. <laughs> so put your place your bets now. <laughs> I actually have one of that. <laughs> there you go. All right, my friend, you have an amazing rest of your day. We'll talk soon, okay? Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely. One more, one more thing for you. When we think about real estate, you you see all these gurus say no money down. Mm-hmm. How real is that? Um. It can be very real and also can be very, very misleading. So mm. what a lot of them are trying to pitch is a notion that's called subject to. And what subject to is, is I'm buying a house from someone, but they're leaving their debt on the house with it in their name. So it essentially has two major restrictions holding back against them. Most people, when they're selling a house, it's because they want to move into a new house. And if they are going to buy the house, most people's economic situation is they can only have one mortgage in their life. So they need the old mortgage to go away to be able to buy the new house. So the amount of people this subject to actually is applicable in terms of sales is very few. Um, I, like I said, I've been doing this since 2011. I've bought two houses on subject to um, because it is very limited opportunity when it actually can happen. Now, that being said, it then requires the person who's selling the house and leaving their mortgage there to have faith in you as the new buyer that you're going to pay off the mortgage, which then decreases the amount of people willing to do that even more. So that is one way of doing it. The other way is if the owner of the house owns it free and clear, and you essentially create your own um, financing agreement with that seller, you can do that with no money down. But at the end of the day, it's one of these things that sounds really good on paper, but rarely is actually executed in the real life. I appreciate that. Thank you, my friend. Have an amazing rest of your day. Perfect. You too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large.